Welcome to the Restoration Church weekly podcast. Please take a minute to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And be sure to download the Church Center app. This is the best way to stay connected and up to date with all that's happening at Restoration Church. Most importantly, we hope the following message will help draw you closer to Christ. Thanks for listening. Welcome, friends, to your favorite game show, Finish That Verse. I'm your host, Ross Manders. This, of course, is a great classic spin on the classic game Name That Tune. Here's how it's going to work this morning, friends. Our contestant will get the first X amount of words to a verse in Romans. All you have to, all you have to do is simply finish that verse. Here is a quick example for you. Love must be... Anybody? Has anybody ever read the book of Romans here? <laughs> sincere. Love must be sincere. Do not continue. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Very good. Emily, do you want to be my contestant since you're the... I do need a contestant. Here we go. Here's how it's going to work. Uh, does, anybody, does anybody think that they can name that verse? There are seven verses, by the way. Name that verse with the first five words of the verse. Anybody? Any takers? Oh, I got one. Does anybody think they can do it in four? Anybody? Any, anybody? Emily? Well, we have... Katie, you, you, you try? All right, come on up, Katie. You might want to know... You might want to know what you're going to win if you can get to 14 points. You'll win a Bridge Coffee and Community gift card. So... All you need is 14 points. Welcome, Katie, to the stage. Sure. Okay. All right. So how many, how many uh, words would you like? Five. You want all five? This, to, to win, then, you need to get every single one plus the reference, just oh. so you know. You need 14 I, points to win. Like, I'm going to tell you I'm not going to get the reference. You can ask your friends. Okay. We can do this communally. You'll just get the gift card. How about that? Okay. You'll just win it. Okay. I could, okay. You want all five words? Okay. Here we okay. go. Yeah. You, you have suggestions on how this game should work? Yeah. What? No. No, I'm going to give her five words. No, no, no. You have to tell me what the reference of the verse is. No, the, the, the verse that I'm going to give her. Okay. I'm going to give you the first word of the verse, and you have to tell me. That's it. Okay. We'll start it easy for you. Therefore. Oh. Therefore, now there's no condemnation in, I know it's in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus? We'll give it to you. I'm going to be, I'm going to be gracious. Oh, I didn't. Oh, sorry. What, what's the reference? There you go. It's eight, we'll, Romans 8. Eight, Romans 8. One. Okay. All right. I got it. Six points. You want you want another one worder? Sure. Do. No. <laughs> do not conform. How about that? I'll give you three. Oh, words. do not conform unto this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I'll give it to you. What's the reference? That's okay. 
Romans 12, 1? Romans 12, 2. Yes, very good. Okay. <laughs> Is anybody keeping track of the points, by the way? I give her three. Three. And four. You're a nine already. Okay. <laughs> for the wages. Oh, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. Our yes, Lord. very good. And the, re- oh, and the, and the reference? Uh, it's in Romans. <laughs> Anybody? Anybody? Okay. 623. 623, very good. all right. All right. Uh, that was three. You're, you're, you're very close. Okay. This is, this is an easy one for you. Okay. For all... Uh, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory yes, of God. Yes, in the reference. Okay. 323. 323. Very good. I think you might I, you might be at 14. You might be at 14, but for the sake of the game, we'll keep going here. Okay. But God. No, that's Jenna, That's no, John 316. No. For, but for God demonstrates oh his love for us in that when we were still sinners christ died for us. yes very good and the reference anybody know the reference <laughs> five eight romans right. five eight right. you're there i think you won right, i think yay! you won but keep going hold on right. we're gonna keep going here there's a point to all this um and we know that in. Oh, all things work together for good in Jesus Christ our Lord. Called, uh, for those uh, called according to his purpose. Very good. Okay. And the reference? Uh, 828. Very right. good. <laughs> Brian Hughes. <laughs> Brian's missing out on a, on a gift card here. He could have raised his hand. All right. And the last one. If it is. Yes. Ah. Uh, 1218. Very good. Hey, congratulations. There you are. Enjoy lunch at the bridge. Hey, thanks for helping Katie out there. I know that was, uh, I know that's, she did know a lot. That was, that was super awesome. Here's the reason I think so many people love Romans though. It's because of the one-liners. It's because of, it's because of those truths that we just, discussed and talked about it's like these are some incredible one-liners some incredible verses that so many of us have burrowed down into our memories but friends romans is a theological nightmare romans is convoluted it's complex it's hard to read there are twists and there are turns paul is constantly running down rabbit trails and he's circling back on arguments you made several chapters earlier no modern day publisher would ever have printed the text the way that it is There's no way they would have printed Romans the way it is. They would have asked for far more clarification on what Paul was actually talking about. But here's the thing. Paul didn't have an editor in the first century. First century documents were written on papyri scrolls, or they could have been sheets or even just segments, small segments. And the reason that first century documents are the length that they are was because that was how much papyri the author had available to them. The reason Romans is the length it is is because Paul probably had a significant portion of scroll before him. But you go to like, you know... um, Second John, for instance, or, or even Jude, right? Like the, all they had was just little tiny section of papyri, and so that's the length of the letter that they wrote. That's how long the, the documents were. Papyri was very expensive, and so few people ever wrote anything down. Papyri was also very porous. 
so when you put ink to papyri, there was no way you were ever getting that back. You couldn't delete, you couldn't edit it, you couldn't backspace. None of this was available to Paul. He therefore could not make an outline of Romans before he put it to pen. He may have had an outline in his brain, but it was not on paper. It's not like Paul created an outline of Romans, and then he wrote his first draft, and then he handed that draft in to his English teacher and said, will you edit this for clarification, for editing marks? And she handed it back with a number of things like, you know, you really should not go down this rabbit trail because it just completely derails the argument that you're making. And then he was like, oh, finally, after all these edits, then I'll write a final copy and send it off to Rome. That's not what we had. Paul had a sheet of papyri, and he started putting his words on paper, and, and you know, if he right into a jewish audience he was thinking maybe like oh they have a they have a hang-up about the law and so i got to go down this rabbit hole about the 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 law and then uh that's going to lead to another argument and that's going to lead to another argument and that's exactly what he does like you read romans and it's just a theological complex convoluted nightmare but we love romans because of these one-liners we love romans because of some of these incredible truths that come out of it but it is not easy to read His train of thought takes him all over the place. And that's what we get in Romans 8. We're going to spend the first 17 verses of Romans 8, and he is basically making the same argument over and over again. He's circling around. He backtracks. He says the same thing again. He's redundant. He's repetitive. He's cyclical, and it takes a long time to get to new thoughts. But it's so rich, and it's so wonderful if we can just wade into it. And that's why we're doing That's why we're spending seven weeks picking apart this incredible chapter of Scripture. And so there are four things that are hoping that you are going to do with us. I hope that you are going to read Romans 8 as often as you can throughout the series. Maybe that's every day. Maybe that's once a week. I would encourage you to read it in different translations, translations that you've never read before, translations might be every single day. Read Romans 8 as often as you can. I'd encourage you to bring your text with you so that you're actually in the text with us on Sunday mornings. We encourage that... What was the third thing we encouraged everyone to do? <laughs> to read it. Don't miss it. Thank you. Yes. Don't miss any services. And, and you're coming here in droves, so that's awesome. Uh, don't miss any services because every Sunday is going to build on the one prior. And even if you can't make a Sunday, we really encourage you to go back and listen to it um, via the, the podcast or on our website or watch it on Facebook or YouTube. Um, and then the last one is to invite your people because there are some incredible truths, some freeing life-giving truths that are going to come out of this series. And so I'd really, really encourage you to invite your people to join you. If you've been with us, you will know that Paul begins Romans 8 by saying, we are not condemned. We are not condemned. And I don't know how many people of you need to hear that this morning. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, our Lord. No condemnation. Because God, through Jesus, did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And those now who are in Christ, and we talked about what it meant to be in Christ in week one, that we have center at the, our Christ is the center of our lives, and we sift our worldview and our self-worth and our, our, our acceptance, um, our choices, our thoughts, that He is the Lord of our life. He is at the center of our life. We have surrendered to Him. For those who have surrendered to Christ, his faithfulness is now passed on to us so that we could stand before God, not condemned. We stand justified before God because of what Christ has done for us, not because of anything that we have done, not because of our good works, not because we've you know, balanced some celestial scale that our good works outweigh our bad works, none of that. We stand justified before God in the end because of what Christ has done on our behalf, and we are in Christ by trusting in what he has accomplished. He then empowers us with his spirit to live rightly and then to raise us to eternal life and life right now. 
And so the question is, if God did all this for us, if God did it, God did it, God did it, this is not our own doing, if God did all this for us, how then ought we to live? What should be our response? And that is where Paul is going to bring the argument next. That's where he's going to go in the next section of Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17 is where we're going to be heading today. But before he gets there, of course, he's going to backtrack, and then he's going to circle around an argument a few times, and then he's going to chase down a rabbit hole at the end, which is going to lead us into a new conversation next week. Here's how he continues his argument in chapter 8. Therefore, knowing and believing that Christ did all of the work which we could not, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. This word literally means that we are in debt. We are responsible. We owe. We are obligated to pay back, usually with interest. Isn't that how debt usually works? With interest, what we borrowed, which is why the proverb says this. The borrower is slave to the lender. The borrower is slave to the lender. The debt-debtor relationship always becomes a master-slave relationship, Paul is saying. The lender always dictates the terms and responsibilities of the agreement. Just think about all the debt that you might have, right? The lender is the one who dictates the terms and responsibilities of your relationship. The pay schedule, and if you're not obedient to the expectations, what happens? The repo man comes and takes what you borrowed. They repossess what you took. They dictate the pay schedule. They dictate the time frame. If you do not follow, you will suffer the consequences. The lender, in other words, always has the power. And some of you know this. Some of you know this intimately because you're in debt. Some chuckles out there. You're thinking, yeah, yeah, that's, that's true of me. It's true of most Americans, actually. We are in debt. You never wanted to get to this place in life. You never dreamed of, you know, being in your 40s and being so underwater in debt, but it just kind of happened, right? Because you went to school and you took out the student loans and then you got the car and then you bought the house and, and then it's like, you know, that emergency happened, so I needed to put it on the credit card. And that thing happened that I wanted and I took that family trip that I really couldn't afford and my kids were really begging for it, and so swiped it on the credit card and, and now you find yourself just swimming, and you're wondering if you can sustain this, right? You're hemorrhaging every single month. You can't sustain it. You know exactly what it feels like to be a slave to the lender. Like most Americans who carry $104,000 in debt on average, it's up $20 trillion as a nation over the last 20 years, by the way. You're not free to do what you want because most of your money is tied up in paying off debt. Your future is locked up in this debt And these lending companies have stolen your peace and your security as you find yourself enslaved to worry and anxiety and fear. No raise of hands, but does that just ring true to anybody? You know what it's like to be in debt, and you know what it feels like to be a slave to the lender. The lender always has the power over the borrower. But, Paul is so excited to say, but our debt is not to the flesh. If you're with us last week, you may recall that the, the flesh isn't the body, it's not the physical world, it's the anti-spirit kind of life, it's the anti-love, it's those behaviors and that mindset and the ways of life that are opposed to godly behavior and godly mindset and a spirit-filled life. We are not enslaved, we are not in debt to the flesh, Paul says, to live according to the flesh. You don't owe the flesh anything, Paul would say. 
You're not in debt to the flesh. You don't owe the flesh anything because that way of life that is hostile to God has been put to death with Jesus Christ. That way of life that is so destructive, that is ruining your marriage, that is ruining your household, that is causing crazy chaos in your life, you're not in debt to that life. You don't owe that life anything. That life has been put to death and it is no longer your master. We do not have to obey it. We do not have to follow its rules. We are not obligated to live according to it. You owe it nothing. And listen up, friends, because I think some of you need to hear this this morning. You don't owe your past anything. You don't owe your mistakes anything. You don't owe your guilt anything. You don't owe your shame anything. The fleshly way of life has done you no favors and you owe it nothing. And I don't know entirely what that means, but I do know this much. I do know that some of you are still clinging to your guilt. I know that some of you are still clinging to your shame. I know that some of you are still clinging to things that you have done or things that have been done to you in your past and you cannot walk freely because they are your master still. But Paul would come along and say, friends, don't believe that. Don't live that way. You do not owe the flesh anything. It has been put to death. It is no longer your master. And there is no condemnation for you. Yeah, you were guilty once. Yeah, you were shamed once. Yeah. You made some mistakes. You were damaged, yeah, but you are not condemned because God has done for you what you could not do for yourself. And so your shame, your mistakes, your past, and its power over you has been killed at the cross of Jesus Christ. And it has been crucified there. But if you live according to the flesh, if you stay in that mindset and continue to let it master you, Paul says you're going to die. If the flesh continues to be the lender and it maintains its power over you, you will never meet its demands, he says. Its pay schedule, its demands, you're never going to meet it. It will take your life, it will take your joy, it will take your peace, it will take, take, take. Because isn't that what a lender does? If you continue to let it be your master, it will take your life, it will steal your peace, it will take your joy because that is what a lender does. So what Paul is saying is that if you want to keep letting the flesh, right, the self-reigning life that is hostile to God's ways and opposed to God's life, that selfish life <clears throat> that sifts decisions and words and, dis- and responses and purpose and identity through the filter of the self, the life that has the self at the middle and seeks promotion and self-protection above all or most things, then chaos and ruin is going to follow you. You're going to die. The lender is going to take, take, take your peace and your joy and your life. When Paul speaks of death, he's not only talking about condemnation on the last day. He's not talking about only eternal death, though certainly he has that in mind. He's talking about how sin always comes prepackaged with a consequence. Sin invites death. Sin creates a world that is hostile to peace. Think about way back in the story of Adam and Eve at the very beginning. Maybe some of you have read the story. You know the story. Adam and Eve... We're told that if they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they would die. If you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. And sometimes we paint this, this picture of God as this cranky, cantankerous taskmaster, this, this old, angry, embittered man in the sky with a quiver full of lightning bolts, and he's just waiting for us to trip up so that he can throw that lightning bolt at us. I mean, how else are we supposed to interpret that? If you eat of that tree, you will die. You sinned, 
you must die. But all God is really saying in Genesis 3 to Adam and Eve and to the rest of creation after them is that when you live in opposition to God's ways, life's not going to go well for you. Some of you know this because life's not going well for you. And there is chaos in your life. And if you were to dig underneath the surface of all the chaos you're experiencing and the tension in your household and the tension in your marriage, you know what you'd find? People living selfishly. People living with themselves at the center of who they are and they're letting their life be filtered through themselves rather than in love for the person next to them. You want to live in opposition to my ways, you're going to die. Adam and Eve didn't fall over dead when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but life was certainly thrown into chaos. If you know how the story goes, they run, they start blame shifting each other. How many of your households just are constantly pointing the finger at one another? Not taking ownership, right? And God says, yeah, now the ground is going to be cursed because of you. And it's not like God is cursing the ground. He's just saying, you know what? Your work is going to be hard now. Labor is going to be hard now for the women. When you live in opposition to my ways, life is just, it's not going to go well for you. You will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, Paul continues, if you crucify that selfish center, you bring your selfish ways to the cross of Jesus and you die to your selfish ways, you shove yourself out of the center and you invite Jesus in and you allow the spirit to grow up in you, then Paul says you will live. Live in opposition to God's ways and you will die. You will experience chaos. You will experience the effects of death. But live under the power and the guidance of the Holy Spirit and you will experience peace and prosperity and life and healing and wholeness. Likewise, where sin invites death and chaos, the life of the Spirit invites peace and love right now. But also, Paul would say, in eternity, in eternity as we are free from condemnation. So, Verse 14, for those who are led by the Spirit of God. For those who are led by the Spirit of God. When I was in college, I used to serve tables at Don Pablo's. <clears throat> I thought about actually incorporating a, um, a serving table restaurant in every message of the series, just for fun, because that would have been kind of fun, right? I did that in the first, in the, in the first one, but I, I served at Don Pablo's uh, for many years through college and through seminary. And when I was in college, there was a couple that would come in every other Friday, uh, and eventually it was just coincidence. They would be sat in my section, but eventually they just became regulars. And so they were begin to ask for me. And so every other Friday I had the same couple that I would serve tables. And of course, you know, anybody who served tables, you get to know people as you talk to them and get to know their stories. And, um, it was eventually discovered that I was studying Bible and theology in seminary, um, nearby. And then he was like, oh, well, I should probably tell you that I'm an atheist. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. You know, that's, that's, you know, I'd love to hear more of your story. We're sitting over a table. But what, what I thought was so interesting about this was that these were some of the most kind, generous tippers that I ever had. Like, this couple was just an amazing, friendly, fun, kind-hearted, generous couple. And yet they were atheists. And, and I had to wrestle with that for a long time. Like, how could somebody who just hated God, and the reason he, we got to know each other a little bit, but the, the reason that he was so opposed to Jesus was because he grew up Catholic, and in his particular parish, there was scandal and there was abuse. And so he had this character of Jesus. He was like, I want nothing to do with that. I want nothing to do with the church. I want nothing to do with, with, with anything related to Jesus. And so I just, I don't believe any of it, right? There's too much pain. There's too much hurt that is associated with that. 
And if I could go back and have a conversation with now, I would just em- embrace him with compassion and, and help him see a, a different version of Jesus. But he was so kind and generous and loving and fun. These attributes that we attribute to the spirit towards someone who doesn't even believe in God. Like, how, how can that be? And there was a time when, when I didn't see him for a long time. This couple just out of the blue just stopped. And then about six months later, he came in, but he wasn't with his wife. He was with a new woman. And so I just chatted with him briefly, and he was like, yeah, well, you know what? We, we, we would go into this restaurant, and we would have so much fun, and we would, like, pretend that we were together, and we would leave, and we would just fight all the way home. And there was just chaos, he would say, chaos, chaos, chaos in my household to the point where we just couldn't take it anymore. We got divorced. And then he introduced me to his you know, new girlfriend and whatnot. But here's what's interesting. Paul, Paul is saying, like, you know, friends, it is those who are led by the Spirit who will experience peace. Do you, do you know that people will exhibit qualities of the Spirit simply by the fact that we are made in the image of the God who is love? There is the seed of the Spirit in every single person. The seed of the ability to love is in every single person. But to be led by the Spirit is completely different. So Paul is like, I have to make this distinction. For those who are led by the Spirit are different than those who have the seed of the Spirit buried deep within them. This is not just about exhibiting Spirit-like qualities from time to time. That is going to happen naturally again because everybody is made in the image of God. But people with Jesus at their center have the Spirit driving them. This term led, ago in the Greek, most often actually refers to animals on a leash. Whenever it's used, it's referring to animals who are on a leash. And I think of our dog, Elsa, cutest little puppy out there. She has leash reactivity. We're working on it. I know, I know, I know. Don't judge us. Okay, well, I know. Sometimes she thinks she's the boss. And you guys have pets out there who think they're the boss? You take them on a walk and they think they're the boss. She tries to take us where she wants to go. And I just, I reflect on this. And every time she takes us, it's usually to something disgusting, first of all. It's like, it's like a dead bird or a pile of poop or like, or into a fight with another dog. Who, yeah, she was, I'm like, you will be eaten as a snack for that dog. Like, you know, settle down, like. When they, when they try to take us where they want to go, it's usually to something disgusting. And like, that's a metaphor for all of our lives, friends. Okay? When we take the spirit where we think we should go, it usually ends up disgusting for all of us. Just because you're on a leash, here's the point. Just because you're on a leash doesn't mean you're allowing yourself to be led. Just because you're on a leash does not mean you're allowing yourself to be led. To be led means to surrender your control. To be led means to surrender your plans for where you're going and the pace by which you're going there. And we can fight it, but when we do, it always creates tension on the leash. Friends, you know you're being led when there's no tension on the leash. This morning, um, my six-year-old, lovely, beautiful, wonderful daughter and I were just at each other. Because she will not pick out a freaking outfit to wear. <laughs> and there was a lot of tension on the leash. And I, and I had to acknowledge that. And it wasn't just her tension. Though a lot of it was, you know, she, she was making the least tension. But a lot of it was me as well. <laughs> and so, I acknowledged it. We, I, I owned it. 
I know. I know. I'm not. I know. Oh my goodness. I'm teaching a parenting course tonight. I think, right? Oh man. Uh, she. Um, so I. I just. I go to her and I'm like. I'm like Evelyn. I'm sorry for the way I was behaving. Is there anything you want to say to Daddy? You know, like. <laughs> Yes, Daddy, I'm sorry, okay. Like she you know, she apologized. But like how how do you get tension off the leash? Humility. Humility, friends, is how you get tension off the leash. Acknowledging that, you know what, there was tension and it was caused by my own taking the spirit where I wanted to go. My own control, taking it and owning it. Taking it somewhere maybe that into into my selfish center rather than a loving center. A patient center you know you're being led when there's no tension on the least i said i talked about this last week too if there's tension it's a clear indication that your center is crowded it's a clear indication that you're cluttered in your heart and the spirit is trying to get our attention to help us see that jesus is getting pushed out in those moments if there's ever tension in your relationships you know that the spirit isn't as present as it should be in those moments the term is also used to describe a yoke it's kind of the same idea a yoke was a, a wooden bar that was placed over two oxens as they moved the yoke kept them going in the same direction and to the same destination. The idea is that we are yoked to the Holy Spirit and together we are moving in a certain direction into a certain destination. The Spirit is leading us somewhere specific, in other words. And Paul isn't actually going to get around to telling us where the Spirit is taking us until verse 29, so we'll get to that in a couple of weeks. But the Spirit compels our actions along this journey and the spirit produces its life in us along this journey and i said last week there, there paul actually provides several different lists in all of his letters about what the the actions and the life of the spirit look like and here's a, this is a non-exhaustive list but here's the list that paul essentially provides as to what the spirit of the the life of the spirit looks like in those who are letting the spirit lead them these will come out in increasing measure these will be more known in your household and in your relationships and in your heart. These will bring you to a peaceful solution in your house. Disdain for evil, honor of others above self, you're joyful, hopeful, patient in trial, generous, hospitable. You can read this for yourself. It goes on and on and on. But here's just a non-exhaustive list of these are the, the evidence that the Spirit is working in you, that you're being led by the Spirit. And so if these aren't true of you, if these aren't evident in you, then you know there's tension on your leash. And Paul would say, friends, you got to start with humility. You got to start with humility. And you have to allow then the spirit through that humility to do more in us. Paul would come and say, friends, the, the, the key to Christian discipleship, the way forward in Christian discipleship is surrender. It's not doing more through your own strength or your own efforts. This is why I say nearly every week that my hope for all of us is more of Jesus, less of us. It's so simple, though it's not easy, but more of Jesus and less of us, that's really the essence of Christian discipleship. So, Paul would say, those who are led by the Spirit, they are the children of God. The, the Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Remember, Paul began this whole section by saying that once we were in debt to the flesh... The flesh was our master, and like a lender demanding repayment on a loan, it took what it demanded of, and it enslaved us to its condemnation, its guilt, its shame, its anxiety, and its fear. But that's not true anymore. The mastery of the flesh was put to death with Jesus. So 
Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. We're not slaves under the obligation to pay back a cruel lender who will take and take and take until there's no more to take. We are now children taken from the streets and we are invited home. You see, as a borrower, you owe, you owe, you owe, but as a son or a daughter, you receive, you receive, you receive. Lenders will take and take and take, but my friends, God gives and gives and gives. Adoption was largely a foreign idea in Paul's day. It did happen in the Roman world, but not very often. The idea that a parent would take responsibility for a child that wasn't their own was a wild, outrageous idea, and few people ever considered it, let alone ever acted upon it. Because the act of adoption is to unconditionally take on the full responsibility of what caring for and providing for and guiding a child and to claim that child as one's own. And so here's what I just love about what God has done for us in Jesus. God has adopted us into sonship and daughtership. God has adopted our whole selves All of our trauma, our pain, our trouble, our sin, our rebellion, our debt. And he claims us as his own, even while we were young and foolish. He takes us and he clothes us and he cares for us. He protects us. He guides us. And we come under the care of his fatherhood and his household, his protection, his providence, and his guidance. And by him, Paul says, that we cry. By the Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father, The word Abba is only used three times in the New Testament, once by Jesus and twice by Paul. And it's interesting because it's an Aramaic term. And so they actually left the Greek language when they were writing this to jump to Aramaic, and they inserted the Aramaic term for father alongside the Greek term for father. So this literally reads, and by him we cry, Father, Father. But for some reason they felt it necessary to bring the Aramaic term into the Greek language. The Jewish rabbis would say this, And they would differentiate between Abba, which is the Aramaic term for father, and Pater, which is the Greek term for father. They differentiate with this. If you approached God requesting something of him, you might call him Pater, father in Greek. As Jesus does when he begins the Lord's Prayer. But if God provided you a bowl of water and asked you to wash your hands before dinner, you would respond, yes, Abba. We may not understand the subtleties of the distinction, but it's this. Abba recognizes not only that God is our provider, he's the one who has given us the water, but that he also expects us to do what he has asked us to do with the water he has provided. And we are able to cry, Abba, Father, by the Spirit. Abba says, I am surrendered, in other words. I am surrendered. I will obey. I will do what you have asked. It's the acknowledgement of who God is, and it's our cry to be aligned with him. Align me, Father. Align my heart. Align my strength to be in line with you. Put Jesus more at the center of who I am. May there be more of Jesus and less of me. That is the cry of Abba, Father. May my heart be aligned. And that is the spirits of God's cry in us. The spirit himself, Paul continues, testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are the children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. See, in the first century, in those rare cases that adoption actually did take place, the parents had to bring seven witnesses before the courts because if there was a dispute about the rights of the child inheritance, 
the witnesses could testify on behalf that this child was a legitimate child because they had actually been adopted by the father. And let's be honest, isn't there a lot of disputing within your own heart and mind if we are true heirs of the promise of God? I, I, I wonder about that myself sometimes. Are we truly children of God? Because for a lot of us, and let's just be honest, a lot of us, that old master, that flesh, that, that lender of death still spews his lies from beyond the grave trying to convince us that we are not legitimate children. I, I, I keep doing this thing that is wrong. I'm doing too many wrongs. The, that, 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 that old taskmaster keeps speaking out beyond the grave. Our cry isn't always that my heart would be aligned with God. I'll just be honest. Like that, that's not always my, my heart's desire. Our greatest desire isn't always that there is more of Jesus and less of me. Our hearts are cluttered and sometimes we don't care that our hearts are cluttered. Our hearts are crowded and sometimes we don't care. Our, there's tension revealing that I'm far from the Spirit and, and sometimes we don't care. But it's in those moments that the Spirit of God bears witness on our behalf that we are indeed children of God and that God has adopted us as we are. He took all of our trauma, all of our baggage, all of our failures and mistakes, our guilt, our shame, our rebellion, our hatred, our disdain. He took us the mess that we are and he called us sons and daughters. We were bleeding and bruised, naked and homeless, wandering the darkened alleys of our rebellious, wayward, self-centered life, and God came to us. He met us as we are. He bandaged our wounds. He cleansed us. He clothed us, and he started to heal every part of us, and he started to illuminate every darkened corner of our heart and darkened corner of our mind. And a key part of Christian discipleship is to recognize that voice of God's Spirit witnessing on our behalf when we can't witness for ourselves. When we forget that we are God's children because of that thing that we did again, the Spirit comes along and says, remember, you're a child of God. Remember that God has adopted you just as you are. One of the primary things the Spirit is going to say, and we're going to find our Spirit then agreeing with God's Spirit, is that we are indeed God's children. And we will then receive every right of a legitimate child. We will receive our inheritance if indeed, Paul says, we share in his suffering in order that we may also share in his glory. Sharing in Christ's suffering is hard for a comfortable American culture, isn't it? It's a hard word for us. We don't understand it. We don't get what he's saying. But think of like throughout the people of Africa, Christians in Africa, the Middle East, Asia, much of Asia today. Christians are being hunted and killed because of their faith in Jesus Christ. It would be a few more years before Paul's audience would begin to experience widespread Christian persecution in the Roman world. But Paul's primary fundamental truth that he wants to address is this. To follow Jesus is to sacrifice. To let the Spirit lead you is fundamentally sacrifice. To be a follower of Jesus, to live under the banner of his life, to say no to the taskmaster and yes to the Father is sacrifice and i'm gonna invite emily forward we're gonna sing one really quick song as we finish our hand together but i want to explain to you exactly why this is sacrifice before we do so the fundamental question for every person is this who are you going to say no to that's the question who are you going to say no to in paul's day christians could be spared if only they'd say no to jesus and yes to the emperor Throughout the world today, Christian lives could be spared if only they'd say no to Jesus and yes to the interests of the militia or of the communist government. 
And for us in comfortable America today who don't have a lot of persecution and we don't have a lot of people breathing down our necks demanding their allegiance and for us to say no to Jesus, we are asked and prompted to say no to Jesus all the time, aren't we? Every time we say yes to ourselves, every time we say, I'm going to put myself more at the center of me, we are saying no to Jesus and yes to me all the time. We do it all the time. We say no to Jesus all of the time. Our suffering may not be with our lives, our physical lives, or may not be our head against a chopping block, but the fundamental principle is the same for everyone. Saying yes to Jesus will always lead to suffering. For some, it will be their physical lives. For others, it's to say no more to, to the spirit that prompts generosity. It's saying no to a habit that we are enslaved to and found our identity in, and it feels like we are to stop and crumble. If we were to ever take that thing away, if we were to remove that thing from the center, say say yes to Jesus and remove that thing from the center, we feel like we would crumble. Saying no might mean detox of any number of things. And ask anybody who's gone through detox, it feels like suffering. Saying no to the world, saying no to me, saying no to more of me and less of Jesus, right? To, to, to allow Jesus in his rightful place, that feels like suffering sometimes. We may not have our head against a chalking block, but the fundamental truth is the same. We are all up against the question, what are we going to say no to? Suffering with Christ means that we die to ourselves, that we crucify the flesh with him at his cross and putting the old self to death. And only then, Paul would say, then and only then will you experience the fullness of life. Allow yourself to be led by the Spirit. Allow more of Jesus into your heart and you will experience life. But stay enslaved to that old taskmaster. Say no to Jesus. Say yes to yourself. You will be enslaved to that old taskmaster. And that lender is going to demand your peace and your joy and your happiness and your life. You will die. But there's so much, so much to be gained by saying yes to Jesus. So that's my invitation this morning. Say yes to Jesus, friends. More and more and more yes to Jesus. And you will experience abundant life in his name. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for this opportunity to remember who you are, Father, and what you've accomplished for us. And I just pray that we might be a people who are saying more and more and more, Father. No to the ways of the world. No to those things that are hostile to the flesh or hostile to your ways, God. No to the flesh. And I want more of Jesus, more of Jesus, more of Jesus. I want to be led more by his spirit. And I know when I'm not being led because there's a lot of tension on my leash. There's a lot of tension in my life, a lot of tension in my household. And whenever that is true, Father, that is an indication that someone somewhere is far from you. And so would you humble us? Would you help us acknowledge where we are far from you, Father? And in our acknowledgement, in our humility, Father, come back to you and begin to unclutter the chaos of our hearts so that we would truly experience life instead of the chaos that the lender of death demands of us. Free us, Father, and thank you that you call us children and that when we fail, you don't, you don't abandon us or disown us, Father. You remind us that we are children and so we ought to live as children under the protection and the guidance of this household all glory be to your name amen we're just going to sing a short portion of the song just as a way to
invite the Spirit to lead us and to guide us as we move forward. Jesus, may that be true. And if that is true, Father, may we then just say no to those things that lead us away, that make us even more lost and more confused. And may we start saying more yeses to Jesus and no mores to me. Give us the strength, Father, in your name we pray. Amen. Friends, thanks for joining us today. I invite you to join us again next week as we continue our series, Jesus-Centered Christianity.